the headlines tonight. Federer's racket wins tennis war. Grand Central Terminal, a bigger station than the Queen's hat. And F-16 fighting Falcon, the bird that bites back. Maxine's Kanzapurzutun. Plus, coming up, news from the Old Bailey as Jim Spriggs, the world's greatest confidence trickster, sentenced the judge to five years hard labor, says two Ronnies. Those are the headlines. This is the news. In a world where the truth is as rare as a smile from a shark, you can trust us to bring you the facts. The news bang. The only thing standing between you and the truth is your ignorance. Editos. 2004. The year 2004, a time when tennis was still played with rackets and not just in the locker room. Enter Roger Federer, a Swiss cheese of an athlete who held on to the top-ranked men's singles position for a record-brenning 237 weeks. He dominated the court like Pete Sampras on steroids, winning 20 major titles and spending 310 weeks as year-end number one. The ATP rankings, determined by a merit-based system where players earn points for good behaviour at sleepovers, has seen 28 players reach number one since 73, including legends like Bjorn Borg, John McEnroe, and now Federer. But how did he do it? We sent our intrepid reporter Ryder Boff to find out. Thanks, Martin. I'm here outside Wimbledon, where Roger Federal Express Federer is practising his backhand strokes on some unsuspecting balls. Roger, what's your secret? Well, Ryder, it's all about practice. And, ah, well, performance enhancers. Cough. A candid admission there from the man himself. But who are we to judge? After all, this is professional sports. Home of as many needles as an embroidery convention. Back to you in studio. Believe 1913. The year 1913, and New York City's Grand Central Terminal, is the largest train station in the world. It's so big, it even has its own zip code. Serving as the southern terminus for Metro Northern Railroad's Harlem, Hudson and New Haven lines, it also connects to Long Island Railroad and the New York City subway. Imagine that, a subway in New York. Who would have thought? The terminal is as busy as a beehive on steroids. Third busiest in all of North America, they say. But with great size comes great responsibility and all something like that. We sent our intrepid reporter Percy Fallowfist to find out more about this bustling hub of activity. Percy? Thanks, Martin. I'm here at Grand Central Station where commuters are rushing about like ants on caffeine pills. The place is heaving with people trying to catch their trains or just get away from those damn pigeons. Let me grab someone for their thoughts. Excuse me, sir. What brings you here today? Oh, I see. You're lost too, eh? Well, join the club, matey. Back to you in the studio, Martin. 1974. 1974, the year of Watergate and bell-bottoms. In a world first, General Dynamics unveiled their newest creation, the F-16 Fighting Falcon. This military marvel took to the skies like an iron eagle on amphetamines. The single-engine fighter jet was designed for air superiority day or night, all while listening to some groovy tunes on its 8-track player. The F-16 soon became a hit with pilots who found it could outmaneuver any other aircraft at the Key Party Tricks competition. But as time went by, improvements were needed. Enter the F-16E Fighting Falcon Plus, 
which had been to finishing school and could now order from a French menu without embarrassment, and then came along the F-16AM Falcon Extra. It still couldn't parallel park, but my word could it carry missiles. Today, improved versions are being built for export only, much like a middle-aged divorcee in Magaluf, with potential buyers including Iran, Iraq and North Korea, the discount bin of international arms sales. So next time you see an F-16 soaring through friendly skies, remember, it may not be Alan Titchmarsh up there. News Bang, the only news source that doesn't need a bailout. And now, here's Shakanaka Giles with your daily weather report. Welcome to your daily weather report, brought to you by yours truly, Shakanaka Giles. Tomorrow, we're expecting a bit of a frosty affair. It's as if winter has taken a sip of icy tea and decided to share the chill with us all. Starting in the southeast, expect a misty morning that'll leave you feeling like you've just strolled through a spider web. Keep those umbrellas handy as the drizzle will be as relentless as an overly attached puppy. In the Midlands, it's going to be as cold as a polar bear's nose. Wrap up warm and keep moving, or you might just turn into an ice sculpture. The north of England and Scotland are in for a treat too, with temperatures dropping faster than stocks on Black Monday. It's time to break out those thermals and hot water bottles. In summary then, tomorrow will be colder than a penguin's toes and wetter than a fishmonger's apron. Stay warm and dry, folks, and that's all the weather. In 1942. The year is 1942, and the Norwegian resistance movement, a beacon of defiance against the encroaching darkness of occupation, stands tall. From 1940 to 1945, this movement took various forms assertions of legitimacy, military defense, armed resistance, civil disobedience. The Oswald Group, a valiant resistance organization, struck the first blow by bombing Oslo East Station in protest of Vidkun Quisling's inauguration. Quisling, a Norwegian military officer and Nazi collaborator, led the government during the occupation. Now to delve deeper into this tale of courage and resilience in the face of adversity is our correspondent Brian Bastable. And you join me now, for the first time, on this night of nights. The sky is black as a raven's tuxedo and darker still, and it thunders with the power of 10,000 bowling balls dropped from an orbiting space station. In front of me, I see that what used to be Oslo Central Station lies in ruins, for this is the spot where just moments ago an unnamed group of saboteurs detonated high explosives in protest at the recent appointment of Vidkun Quisling as leader. A man whose name means less than nothing to these brave men who sit here shivering beneath their rain-drenched blankets sewn from spider silk by a dozen maiden aunties in secret cloisters under Loch Ness Lock somewhere or other. 
No one knows where these things come from, but we are grateful they do not cost us any more than our attention and perhaps the very last few grains of rice remaining in our dusty baskets. After months living off crumbs and shavings brought out to us by chattering squirrels on their way home through midnight forests. Frostier than an ice sculptor's tears at his own wedding. The station itself looks like it has been hit by every bomber squadron west of the Urals, though none have yet claimed responsibility for tonight's carnage. Perhaps because there were no bombs involved, only courage and conviction. But whatever force brought down this mighty symbol of occupation will surely face retribution soon enough when dawn breaks over these battered buildings and reveals once again that glorious sight. A nation united against tyranny. Brian Bastable reporting live from occupied Norway or something like that. It is a situm. 2007. In a shocking turn of events that has left the world of football reeling, a tragic case of hooliganism during the Sicilian derby between Catania FC and Palermo FC escalated to unforeseen levels. The death of police officer Filippo Rassiti has led to a re-evaluation of safety measures at Italian sporting events. With Catania leading the series by five victories to Palermo's four, tensions between rival clubs have reached a boiling point. The incident has not only suspended Italian football for about a week, but also prompted urgent discussions on implementing new safety regulations. As we grapple with the aftermath of this senseless violence, we turn to Ken Shit for further insight into the unfolding situation. Good evening, you vile rabble. I bring you news from the darkest depths of human depravity, a tale of blood, violence and football hooliganism so vile it'll make your blood run cold. It's 2007, folks, and the Sicilian derby between Catania FC and Palermo FC has turned into a fucking bloodbath. The violence was so intense, it led to the death of a police officer, Filippo Rattiti, and new safety regulations at Italian sporting events. You see, these football hooligans, these animals, they don't give a shit about the beautiful game. They just want to cause chaos and destruction to prove their superiority over their rivals, and they'll stop at nothing to do it. Catania, the second largest municipality in Sicily, has been the epicenter of this mindless violence. With important transport infrastructures and a population that seems to thrive on chaos, it's the perfect breeding ground for these football thugs. The clashes between Catania FC and Palermo FC have resulted in the suspension of Italian football for about a week. A week without football? That's like a week without oxygen for some of you. But it's a small price to pay to put an end to this senseless violence. So, let this be a warning to all you football hooligans out there. Your days of causing chaos and destruction are numbered. The authorities are cracking down on this shit and they won't tolerate it any longer. And to those of you who think you're tough because you wear the colours of your favourite team, think again. You're just a bunch of cowards hiding behind a facade of bravado. This is Ken Shit reminding you that football is a game, not a fucking war zone. So grow the fuck up and enjoy it for what it is, or get the hell out of my way. Newsbang. Unveiling the veil of deceit one thread at a time.
Our correspondent, Ryder Boff, has been traversing the globe, covering tennis events for us. He's here to share his insights on Roger Federer's record-breaking stint as the world's number one tennis player in 2004. The year is 2004, a vintage year for the tennis world. Roger Federer, that Swiss maestro with a racket for a wand and a headband for a crown, held the top-ranked men's singles position as if it were his birthright. For 237 consecutive weeks, he sat atop Mount Olympus of tennis like Zeus in shorts. Federer there, prancing around the court like a gazelle in lederhosen. The ball is his prey, he stalks it with the grace of a ballet dancer and the precision of a Swiss watchmaker. And there it is, another masterful stroke. It's game, set, match. Federer reigns supreme. Now, let me tell you about rankings. They're determined by this merit-based system that's more complex than my Aunt Mabel's recipe for Christmas pudding. Since 1973, 28 players have been ranked number one, 17 being year-end number one, but none quite like our Roger. I remember back in 04 when I tried to take up tennis myself. They called me Ryder Double Fault Boff on account of my serve being as reliable as British weather forecasters predicting sunshine at Wimbledon. And speaking of personal anecdotes, let's not forget that time I was mistaken for Pat Cash at an airport lounge due to my rather dashing mullet wig and headband ensemble. Signed autographs for half an hour before security caught on and escorted me out faster than you can say breakpoint. But back to Fedra. 310 weeks at world number one in singles by the ATP. What an absolute corker. 20 major men's singles titles under his belt. Each one shining brighter than the last sequin on Elton John's most flamboyant stage costume. So raise your glasses filled with Robinson's barley water because we're celebrating Fedra tonight. King of the court, Sultan of swing, tennis swing that is, and Lord of all he surveys from his lofty perch atop the leaderboard. And now for a whirlwind journey through time and space, it's Polly Beep. Buckle up folks, it's a wild ride through time today. First, we're warping back to 1913, where New York City's Grand Central Terminal is making waves as the world's largest train station. The hubbub is unreal. Commuters are caught in a whirlwind of Harlem, Hudson and New Haven lines, all vying for space. It's like a massive game of train Tetris. Meanwhile, the Long Island Railroad and the New York City subway are playing along, trying to squeeze in amidst the chaos. It's a grand symphony of trains, and the conductor's baton is in full swing. If you're in the area, brace yourself for a time-travelling traffic jam. Fast forward to 2012, and we're navigating the choppy waters of the Solomon Sea. The enviable Queen, a passenger ferry, has capsized and sunk causing at least 88 deaths. The sea, once a battleground during World War II, is now a grim reminder of nature's power. In other news, a bizarre incident has occurred on the M11. A herd of cows dressed as ninjas has taken over the road. They're demanding better pastures and a daily allotment of fresh cud. So if you're in the area, prepare for a moving experience. 
Lastly, we're hearing about a peculiar situation on the A30. A group of time-travelling Vikings has commandeered the road, insisting it's their ancient pathway to Valhalla. They're causing quite the traffic jam with their longships and horned helmets. Watch out for those fearsome warriors. Calamity Prenderville, our science correspondent, takes us on a journey to 2009, when Iran launched its first domestically made satellite, powered by a groundbreaking invention, the British T-powered battery. Well, gather around, newsbangers, because it's time for a blast from the past. Today, we're going to take a look at a momentous event that occurred on this very day in history. No, not the invention of the tea bag, something even more mind-blowing. The year was 2009, and Iran had just launched its first domestically made satellite, Omid. Now, I know what you're thinking, but calamity, isn't Iran a bit far from blighty? Well, fear not, because this is where British innovation comes into play. You see, it turns out that the satellite was actually powered by a revolutionary new type of battery, the British tea-powered battery. That's right, folks. Our beloved cupper had finally found its true calling. The battery worked by harnessing the energy released during the brewing process and converting it into electricity. And with Iran's love of tea almost rivaling our own, it was the perfect solution. The launch was supervised by none other than President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad himself, or as I like to call him, the Mad Mullah of Tehran. He was joined by a team of top-notch Iranian scientists and engineers, all of whom had been trained at British universities, of course. Now, I know what you're thinking, but calamity, what about NASA? Surely they had something to say about all this. Well, fear not, because NASA verified the success of the launch the following day. And with British technology playing such a crucial role in the whole affair, who can blame them for wanting to keep quiet? So there you have it. Another shining example of British innovation making its mark on the world stage. Who knows what other wonders we might come up with next? Perhaps a British-made rocket to launch our own satellites into space? Or maybe even a teabag-powered car? Only time will tell. This is Calamity Prenderville from Newsbang, signing off. Adieu's bang, unveiling the truth one layer at a time. Our next segment features Sandy O'Shaughnessy, taking us on a whimsical journey through the annals of history. He's about to explore the peculiarities of Terra Mariana and the legal milestone that was the breviary of Alaric. Ah, and a very good evening to you all. It's your old friend Sandy O'Shaughnessy here, keeping you company as the sun dips below the horizon and the stars begin to twinkle. I'm delighted to be joining you on this fine February evening, and I've got a couple of historical tales to share that are as delightfully peculiar as a three-legged race in a tutu. Ah. <laughs> now, let's hop into our time machine and zip back to the year 1207. Terra Mariana, a name that sounds like it belongs in a fairy tale, was established as a principality of the Holy Roman Empire, a bit like a royal suburb, if you will. And where, you ask, was this magical land? Well, it covered present-day Estonia and Latvia. 
Quite the real estate portfolio, wouldn't you say? Ah. <laughs> now, the Holy Roman Empire, a name that always makes me chuckle, was a bit of a political chameleon. It lasted for almost a thousand years, from 962 to 1806, and it was neither holy, nor Roman, nor an empire, as Voltaire so famously quipped. But it did have its moments, and Terra Mariana was one of them. Ah. <laughs> Alas, the party didn't last long. And by 1215, Terra Mariana had lost its status as a principality. It's a bit like being demoted from the head of the dinner table to the kid's corner. Ah. <laughs> but fear not, for our next tale is a bit more enduring. Let's travel back even further to the year 506. Alaric II, King of the Visigoths, was busy promulgating the Breviary of Alaric, a collection of Roman law. Now, I know what you're thinking. Sandy, what on earth is promulgating? Well, my dear friends, it's just a fancy way of saying making something officially known. So old Alaric was basically shouting from the rooftops, Hey everyone, check out this new law book! <laughs> the Visigothic Kingdom, a realm that occupied southwestern France and the Iberian Peninsula from the 5th to the 8th centuries, was home to quite the diverse population. The Breviary of Alaric applied to the Hispano-Roman and Gallo-Roman population under Visigothic rule. It's a bit like having a separate rule book for the cool kids and the nerds at school. <laughs> but in all seriousness, the Breviary of Alaric was quite the legal milestone, as it was one of the first attempts to compile Roman law in a comprehensive form. And, as it turns out, Roman law forms the basis for civil law today. So, the next time you find yourself in a legal pickle, you might just have Alaric II and his Breviary to thank. Huh? <laughs> Now, I've got a letter here from young Seamus in Kilkenny. He writes, Dear Sandy, I've been trying to teach my pet hedgehog to play the harmonica, but he just rolls up into a ball every time I try. Any advice? Well, Seamus, perhaps your hedgehog is just not musically... In a surprising turn of events, the Export-Import Bank of the United States, Exim, has unveiled its pivotal role in supporting American exports. This government-sponsored agency facilitates export financing when private lenders shy away, acting as intermediaries between governments and exporters. ECAs like Exim provide insurance solutions and guarantees for financing. Perkins Stornoway will now delve into the intricacies of this story. And today, on the 2nd of February, in the year 1934, it was a rather quiet day. Shannon, good, occasionally poor. The Export-Import Bank of the United States, or Exim, started its journey. Forties, veering southeast. ECAs, Fair Isle, Variable 3 or 4, these government-sponsored entities, helped in financing and facilitating U.S. exports when private lenders were not able or willing to provide financing. Fastnet, good, occasionally poor. XEM Bank, Dover, slight or moderate, became an intermediary between governments and exporters. Biscay, occasionally rough. 
They issued export insurance solutions and guarantees for financing, Thames, fair, occasionally moderate. To help with trade, Hebrides, occasionally rough. They can be a combination of both government-sponsored and private, Cromarty, West, backing Southwest, four or five. However, the Export-Import Bank of the United States, Rockall, West or Northwest, three or four was also the cause of friction in the global markets. A German eagle, moderate or good, threatened to scratch the Exim, Seoul, decreasing three or four. Humber, Wind East, three or four, but overall Lundy, fair. The ECAs, Viking, slight or moderate, worked hard to keep the global economy afloat. Fastnet, southwest becoming cyclonic, five or six. The US, despite this, persevered and emerged as the largest exporter in the world. Thames, light rain, occasionally moderate. It's a wrap. In summary, Trafalgar, west, becoming poor. On this day in history, we remember the humble beginnings of the Export-Import Bank of the United States, Hebrides, occasionally rough. May they continue to grow and support U.S. exports in the future. Rockall, West or Northwest, three or four. That's the business. Brie Citastichil, 1709. In a remarkable tale of survival and inspiration, Scottish sailor Alexander Selkirk was rescued by English captain Woods Rogers in 1709. After four years as a castaway on an uninhabited island, Selkirk's ordeal would later inspire Daniel Defoe's iconic novel, Robinson Crusoe. Tragically, Selkirk succumbed to a tropical illness, but his legacy lived on through the eponymous character of Robinson Crusoe. The novel, penned by Defoe, followed Crusoe's adventures after being cast away on a remote tropical island. And now to delve deeper into this fascinating story of resilience and literary prowess, we turn to our culture correspondent, Smithsonian Moss. Now at this point of the evening, we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Waho, culture vultures. It's your audacious anchor, Smithsonian Moss, hijacking your airwaves with a tale that's saltier than a sailor's vocabulary. Buckle up because we're time-traveling to 1709 where our boy Alexander Selkirk got the ultimate me-time on an island with zero bars. And I ain't talking about your local pub. Picture this. Four years of solo beach bumming, and not a single soul to share a coconut cocktail with. Selkirk was the original influencer, living off the grid before it was cool, making friends with goats and chatting up the local flora. Enter Captain Woods Rogers, the seafaring savior who stumbled upon our castaway while probably looking for a spot to bury his treasure or take a cheeky dip. Now, Selkirk's story is juicier than a sun-ripened mango, and it got the quills wagging back home. Daniel Defoe, that English wordslinger, decides to cash in on the drama and pens Robinson Crusoe, the OG survival guide slash adventure blog. But let's not forget, Defoe was a journalist turned novelist. Talk about a career pivot. So what's the real tea? Selkirk's island escapade was like the fire festival of the 1700s, but with less fraud and more actual fire. And our man Woods Rogers? He's like the Bear Grylls of the Seven Seas, minus the camera crew and with way better facial hair. Fast forward to now, and Robinson Crusoe Island is on the map, 
not just for lost sailors, but for tourists with a thirst for that shipwreck chic. And Selkirk, bless his seafaring socks, eventually succumbed to a tropical illness, proving that even the toughest nuts can crack under Mother Nature's watch. So here's to you, Alexander Selkirk, the accidental hermit who inspired a million castaway fantasies and a bazillion beach bonfires. And to Woods Rogers for turning a rescue mission into literary gold. May your legacies live on, like a message in a bottle, floating through the tides of time. And that's a wrap on this shipwreck special. Keep it locked on Newsbang for more tales that'll make you want to abandon society and talk to volleyballs. Smithsonian Moss, out. Newsbang, poking holes in the balloon of lies. And now, a final look at tomorrow's headlines. The Times, British British and French forces battle for Keren in Eritrea. There's a map there of the region. The Guardian. Hitler's ruthless Lebensraum plan revealed. The Independent. Hitler's ruthless Lebensraum plan revealed. There's a picture there of a swastika. The Daily Mail. Hitler's ruthless Lebensraum plan revealed. There's a photo there of a man with a Hitler moustache. The Express. Hitler's ruthless Lebensraum plan revealed. There's a picture there of a man with a Hitler moustache and a swastika. The Sun. Hitler's ruthless Lebensraum plan revealed. There's a photo there of a man with a Hitler moustache, a swastika, and a German shepherd. The Financial Times. Steve Jobs buys Pixar from Lucasfilm. There's a graph there of the company's stock price. And finally, the mirror. Steve Jobs buys Pixar from Lucasfilm. There's a picture there of a man with a Hitler moustache, a swastika, a German shepherd, and a computer. That's it. On the day that a man who was arrested for shoplifting in a supermarket claimed that he was only trying to take a selfie with a tin of beans. Good night. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night. Good night.